This is a Triple J podcast. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Would you ditch your car for an e-bike? Not everyone can. If you're out of the city, probably not really an option. But for a lot of people who don't have to travel far every day, they are doing it. And heaps are asking, why aren't governments making them cheaper? Like, if they're so good for the environment, for health, shouldn't we be investing more in the e-bike future? We're going to be getting into this later. If you've got an e-bike, you'll probably want to listen to it. If you don't and you don't know much about them or maybe you've been thinking about them, you also might want to listen. So stay tuned for that. Also, we're going to be hearing about the guilty verdict handed down over the deadly White Island volcanic eruption that killed 17 Australians. A massive trial into that disaster wrapped up today. First, though, we're getting into a story now about intimate partner violence. Hack. We need to recognise in policy that this is happening to young people. On Triple J. Your first relationships are supposed to be really special. Like a heap of new emotions, strong feelings. If you're lucky, it's something that lasts. But even if it's not, it's definitely something that teaches you a lot about yourself, about other people. There is, though, a much darker side to young love in Australia. We've talked about it on Hack before, and some new data has highlighted just how serious it is. Nearly a third of Australian teenagers say they've experienced intimate partner violence over the past year. A third. And regardless of your gender, sexual orientation, young people are consistently reporting this. So why is the number so high? And what support is available for teenagers? Well, Dr. Carly O'Donnell is with the Australian Institute of Family Studies. She's been leading this research and she's with us now. G'day, Carly. Thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me on. A third of 18 and 19-year-olds experiencing violence from a partner. That blows me away. Were you surprised by that? Yeah, look, it is. It is a really high figure and a startling one. It was actually quite interesting. I was chatting to a friend on the weekend about this and, um, you know, they turned to me and they were like, so that's three in ten of our friends. So if we put our friends in a line, that's three of them. And I was like, well, yeah. And it really, even just some, even though I've been working with this data for so long, even with someone putting it into that perspective for me, yeah. it's that it's that reality, right? It's that these are the these are my friends, these are people I know, these are young people that I see on the street. It it's such a profound finding and such a large issue. That's right. And I mean, you know, people reading the news or hearing stuff on the radio like this, it's all figures, but behind the figures are real stories. And I mean, you're speaking to people, you're hearing some of the stories. What kind of abuse are we talking about here, Carly? Yeah, so in that report, which is um, using the longitudinal study of Australian children, so this is a study that has been collecting data on the same groups of kids for almost 20 years now. And so it's a really powerful longitudinal study in that we've been, you know, surveying the same young people every two years across their childhood and their teenagehood, right? And so we really, we focused on that, on the data from when they were teenagers and particularly around the age of 18 to 19. And so with that, the thing that, the um, form of intimate partner violence that was most prevalent was emotional abuse. And so, you know, we have that figure of, one, um, three in 10 having young people having experienced any form. But when we look at emotional abuse specifically, it's 25%. So that's one in four. Um, and so that's really, again, that's the kind of most prevalent form. And these are these 
kind of experiences and abusive behaviours where young people are being told by their partner that they're crazy or they're stupid or they're not good enough. It's things like, you know, experiencing harassment over phones, um, through social media. And so it's it's these behaviours that can be quite insidious and hard to capture as well. Yeah, I was going to ask specifically about emotional abuse because of the other types of abuse people might be more familiar with, but maybe emotional abuse is something that flies under the radar. Sometimes people don't recognise it for what it is at the time. I also noticed that, you know, as we said, it didn't discriminate in terms of gender or sexual orientation, did it? No, so emotional abuse, we didn't find um, any differences between young men and young women. So typically when we think around the discourse of partner violence, and rightfully so, um, particularly in the domestic violence space, we think about violence against women. Um, But what we found with emotional abuse is that young men were reporting they were just as affected as the young women in our sample. And so that's something that we, we can't ignore, absolutely not. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Dr Carly O'Donnell about the new research that's found almost a third of Australian teenagers have experienced violence in their relationships. Carly, what kind of role did technology play in all of this? So technology wasn't the biggest focus, but, you know, we can't talk about young people's lives um, and even just our lives and not acknowledge the role of technology. So in our in our data, it was certainly a tool for emotional abuse to play out. And that's what we call technology facilitated abuse. Um, and it's, you know, it's something that's always with us. It's, it's that access um, that perpetrators have to victim survivors. Um, and it's something that with technology is a part of the life of young people, part of all our lives. And so it shows up in the space of intimate partner violence as well. There's an interesting link that I saw in the research uh, between the relationship you have with your parents or your friends and the likelihood of suffering violence from a partner. What did you find there? Yeah, so, you know, we were thought as researchers, we're first really interested in thinking about the breadth of the issue. How widespread is this? But we, we don't want to just leave it there. We really want to think about what can we do. Um, and so that's when we started to think about the role of um, friends and having supportive friendships and having parents that you feel as though you can talk to in that trusting relationship with your parents. Um, and so we started to consider the role of those relationships. So what we might think of as quite strong, quite supportive quality relationships with your parents and your friends over your teen years and how that may be associated with a decreased risk and in fact we did find one so for emotional abuse for example having um, strong relationships with your friends at around the age of 16 uh, is associated with a 36% reduction in the um, risk of intimate partner violence and we see similar rates for parents and emotional abuse which is around 39% risk reduction for sexual abuse though and I should let you talk but I really just want to get this one out there is that for sexual abuse the reduction is 77% if young people have a strong um, relationship with their parents that's built in trust and communication at that age of 16, 17 years and that's just such a large number of a reduction of the risk. That's crazy like yeah I don't think people would think it would be that dramatic I certainly didn't think that do you think a lot of young people as well are scared that they're not going to be taken seriously when they want to report these kinds of things whether it's to family friends but also uh, to people authorities and, and those kinds of people Yeah, absolutely. And this has been, you know, a really key thing in my messaging around this work and these findings is that we often don't take young 
people's relationships super seriously. Um, and, you know, in they're probably not the person you're going to be with for forever. Um, but that doesn't mean that your experience with that person while you're dating them needs to be ignored. And that's where, you know, it, it could be harder for young people with that general rhetoric around, well, it's not really that real of a relationship. They could start to question, well, is is this abuse real then? And so it's really about getting that education out there for parents and young people around what it looks like to be in a respectful relationship, what it means to be experiencing violence and abuse, and then on top of that, how to support a young person in your life if they do disclose anything like anything to do with violence and abuse in their relationship. Um, and for parents too, it can be quite distressing to hear this from their child and you might not have all the answers, but that's where we have, you know, lines like 1-800-RESPECT and resources online to help you find that starting point of how to help a young person if they do disclose and, of course, thanking them for telling you and reminding them that abuse and violence is never their fault. Yeah, 1-800-RESPECT, as you mentioned, is always there. 1-800-737-732. Lifeline as well, if people need that hotline, 13 11 14. Just quickly, Carly, do you think that this is kind of a bit of an area of research that's been neglected in the past, these young relationships, early relationships that people have? I think it's certainly an area that's growing and rightfully so that the attention is um, shifting towards it. You know, within the government, there's the national plan to end violence against women and children and young people do feature as a core part of that. And fundamentally, we should be thinking about this and these issues at a time when relationships start, which is that in those teenage years. So I think it's definitely a growing area and an area that I am very proud to be a part of the evidence base for. Well, look, we're very uh, pleased that you were able to come in and explain all of that. It's fascinating research. Dr Carly O'Donnell from the Australian Institute of Family Studies, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Thanks so much. And we've got some messages coming through. Someone says, what's equally stark if you think that three in ten of your friends are victims, you also have to assume that some of your friends could be perpetrators as well. Hack. The final defendant in New Zealand's criminal trial over the White Island volcano disaster has been found guilty on one charge. On Triple J. Yeah, it's been nearly four years since the Fakari White Island volcano eruption over in New Zealand. 17 Australians were among the 22 people who died that day in 2019. And today, a verdict's been handed down in the trial against the company that owns the island. Now, this court case was the biggest of its kind brought by WorkSafe New Zealand. They'd never had a case this big. And Fakari Management Limited, that's the company... They've been found guilty of one charge relating to breaching workplace laws. Now, in a bit, we're going to get into what this means for survivors, for victims' families. But first, here's Angel Parsons with more on what happened that day. And just a warning, there is some heavy stuff and pretty full-on descriptions in here. There was a bit of, like, an eerie feeling. I don't know what's going on here. The last thing I saw was just the whole lake just lifting up in a massive explosion. 47 people were on Fakari White Island on December 9, 2019. Australian Jesse Langford was one of them. Ran about 10 metres, if that, before getting hit by um, just like a wall of black. He was 19 at the time on a cruise with his family. And what you're hearing is some of Jesse's video evidence heard in a New Zealand court as part of the criminal trial into the disaster. Jesse's mum, dad and only sister died. My dad was sitting up, just saying that he was struggling to breathe, trying to rip off the gas mask. 
Um, and then my mom wasn't moving at all. Still bothers me making the decision to get up and walk away. Um, pretty much just said my goodbyes as best as I could. Other survivors have also given evidence in court over the last few months. And I remember feeling my flesh burning and yelling out at one point that just in pain, I checked as soon as the cloud cleared to make sure my wife was okay. I remember he said he was sorry. I was positive we were going to die. And I, if we were going to die, I wanted to be next to him. The survivors' stories heard in court were heart-wrenching. They spoke about the physical trauma, the pain and the desperation to get off the island. And there's footage of the eruption online, some of it taken by horrified tourists on boats nearby the island. Oh, my God! Oh, my God! I could see just this enormous cloud of black and bright white steam and ash. At that point, there was definitely a a shift of, I guess, shock and horror. In the aftermath, local helicopter pilots flew to the danger to try and help with the rescue, and it was only thanks to these efforts that many survivors made it off the island alive. Four years on, first responders, the local community, New Zealand and many Aussie families are still haunted by that day. Here's then-Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern speaking in 2020. In a nation that had experienced so much loss and pain in recent times, 9 December 2019 was devastating. In a community like Whakatane, nearly everyone would know someone involved either on the island or involved in the emergency response that made it so deeply personal. Something that many survivors have said is that they were not properly warned about the risks. The brochure promised tourists could get close to the drama. It said gas masks help you get near roaring steam vents, bubbling pits of mud, hot volcanic streams, and the amazing lake of steaming acid. Originally, 13 parties were charged with breaching New Zealand's workplace health and safety laws. Five parties pleaded guilty and charges were dismissed for others, including individual charges against brothers Andrew, James and Peter Buttle, who own the island. The only party left on trial was the brothers' holding company, Fakari Management Limited. And today, we heard the verdict. The final defendant in New Zealand's criminal trial over the White Island volcano disaster has been found guilty on one charge. Hack on Triple J. Angel Parsons with that update. I want to get into this a bit more now, find out more about what the court said about this guilty verdict in the trial of the White Island eruption, what happens next. Emma Stanford is a senior reporter with Radio New Zealand. She's been covering this trial and she's with us now. G'day, Emma. Thanks for coming on Hack. Hi, you're welcome. It's a guilty verdict that we've heard from the judge today. Can you explain what the owners of the volcano are guilty of? Yes. So the judge today at the Auckland District Court said that Fakati Management, who is the company that 
owns uh, Fakati White Island, uh, the volcano that erupted in 2019. They say that the company failed to assess the risk. The trial focused on that they didn't look into how uh, they could keep the tourists on the island safe which therefore exposed them to risks of an eruption, um, which of course can't be predicted. The judge said they had an option to stop tours altogether or implement effective controls. And they would have been able to do that had they done a risk assessment. The judge also said that Ficardi management did not take expert advice from the outset and so failed in its health and safety duties by being the owner of the island. So it, it's all come down to their lack of um, doing a risk assessment of what it actually means to own a volcano and therefore allow tours to happen on that island. Yeah, it sounds pretty damning. I mean, sentencing is going to happen next year. Do we know what kind of penalty the company faces? So this charge carries a maximum penalty of $1.5 million uh, in a fine. Of course, it could be less than that, but that is the maximum penalty. That sentencing is in February, uh, where the other six parties who have previously pled guilty uh, will be sentenced. Um, It's also interesting to note that the victims have decided to not have any restorative justice. They just didn't want to go through that process again after, obviously, this happened in 2019. So it's been a very long process for them. And the sentencing will be in 2024. So, you know, it's been over four years for them. Has the company said anything at all since this verdict was handed down? No, no, we've not heard anything from the company, neither through their lawyer or through the three men that own the company. But we have heard from the uh, families today. They were obviously quite emotional at the uh, verdict. They said that it was great to have some answers and the acceptance of uh, Fakati management that, you know, it, it was their duty to as the, uh, the island owners to be the owner and look after everything on there. And also that they can now move forward and kind of get on with their lives. Of course, we do, as I said, have that sentencing in in February. So a little bit of a way to go for them yet. Yeah, this trial has been going for a while, hasn't it? It's been a long road to get here. What kind of evidence was heard in the trial? What did you hear? Yeah, so at the start of the trial, we heard a lot from some of the survivors and they obviously spoke about what happened on the day of the eruption right from getting off the cruise ship, going across on the boats, across over to the uh, volcano, and then what it was like when the volcano was erupting. Um, We heard of some horrific injuries that they had. Um, We obviously saw some of those burns uh, when they were in the dock speaking about it. And we just heard some stories of amazing survival and, you know, people thinking that, I'm going to die here. This is where my life is going to end. And some of them were very uh, pleased that they were with family in that moment. We also, of course, heard that some people uh, lost their whole family and they were the the sole survivor of their family on that day. So we heard some really um, sad stories from the victims. And we also heard a lot of evidence from the tour operators and, and those things about what their part in uh, taking tours to the island involved. It's awful stuff. This is Hark, I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Radio New Zealand reporter Emma Stanford about the guilty verdict uh, over the deadly White Island volcano disaster. 
Emma, what kind of impact has this had on the local community? Um, because I imagine it's been significant and also New Zealand generally. Yes, well, they don't do any tours to the island anymore, whether that be um, ground tours or aerial tours. So that has had an impact, obviously, on local businesses in Fakatane, which is the area where the volcano is. Uh, there has also been a place for the people who are interested in watching the trial. They have been able to watch it at a location in uh, Fakatane, either in person at a, at a location or uh, via a live stream, and that has been available throughout the whole time. So people who are in Fakatane or from people that are overseas, because of course it did have um, a lot of overseas uh, victims and survivors um, have been able to be engaged with the trial. Um, so yeah, it, it has had an impact on, on the local town. I think um, they're all going to be very happy that it's coming to an end. I imagine, because as you say, a lot of attention, there've been documentaries, international media has been covering this. It, it wouldn't be easy for a lot of people in local communities. Have we heard much from uh, political leaders in New Zealand uh, about this process uh, and what happens next? No, um, you may be aware that we have just recently had our general election and so we're in a bit of a limbo period before we have our new Prime Minister come in and we are obviously being um, looked after, um, if you would, by our former Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins. So, no, there hasn't been any chat from them about any changes to any laws or anything. But, of course, there's every possibility that something may be looked at when the new government comes in. We do appreciate your insight into all of this. Radio New Zealand reporter, Emma Stanford, thank you very much for coming on Hack. No worries. Thanks for having me. Hack on Triple J. Yeah, and if you want some more information on Hack's Instagram, we've got a uh, story and a post up which, you know, goes through all of this detail. You can find it there. Triple J Hack on Instagram. Hack. We need to be progressing. It just feels like we are falling behind. On Triple J. Have you ever ridden an e-bike before? It might have been one of those shared bike schemes or maybe you've got a cargo bike. You're probably seeing a lot more of them across the country. Like, even if you're not riding one, you know someone who is. They're more popular than ever. And it's because electric cars are so expensive, I guess. A lot of Australians don't have access to them. And experts are saying, well, governments should actually be helping people buy electric bikes. That would be the smart thing to do. If you've got an e-bike, especially if you haven't been into cycling before, but you thought, maybe I want to switch it up, maybe it was a cost thing, it was a health thing, you wanted to do something for the environment, I'm keen to know what you think of it. How is it going for you? Message in 0439757555. Joe Lauder's been looking into this. So, like this one, for example, uh, this is a mid-drive motor, motor mounted in the middle. Mm -hmm. the, you, where you pedal your body puts the power into the chain, that's where the motor puts the power. So it knows whether you're pedalling, it knows how fast you're going, uh, there's no throttle. Like I'm at VeloCycles, it's, it's a bike shop in Melbourne's inner north, chatting to the manager Stuart Armstrong. The shop's right on the capital city bike trail and commuters on bikes stream past the whole time we chat. They've got a bike counter here and at its peak in February, up to 6,000 people ride past every day. And more of those are now on e-bikes. So the electric bikes that we've got are pedelec. It's a pedal assist. That's the category. Uh, and so when you're pedaling, you get assistance. When you don't pedal, you don't get any assistance. So there's no throttle like a motorbike because then it becomes, well, it's an electric motorbike then, isn't it? When we're talking about e-bikes, just how much have they changed in terms of sales and popularity in the last few years? 
Um, yeah, Australia's a bit slower than the rest of the world. We're now probably seeing maybe 20, 30% of, of sales are, are e-bikes. See, we've been doing e-bikes for 11 years now. Um, and uh, yeah, up until probably only maybe five years ago, it was not really a viable business. One of the big things that Stuart's noticed is who's buying e-bikes. With non-electric bikes, people uh, tend to be they tend to be cyclists already. Whereas electric bikes, they tend to be non-cyclists. Oh, look, there's a perfect example. Someone's just going past with three kids on the back of their e-bike. <laughs> I think like. That's the most I've seen. I, I see most people with like one or two, but that, that's pretty yes. good. With an e-bike, you don't have to pay for the cost of a car or petrol, rego, insurance, or the cost of maintaining a car or public transport if you're lucky enough to live somewhere with it. But e-bikes are still more expensive than regular bikes, especially the cargo-style ones. And, and price is really the main obstacle for most people because mm. it, it, they... they you know, they range from, I guess, a decent quality ones from three to, you know, 10 grand and that sort of range. Whereas, you know, your non-electric bikes start at, well, let's say, 500 bucks and they go up from there. Because of the environment, I think it's a big driver and people's own health benefits with riding a bike. Alison McCormack is the CEO of the Bicycle Network. She agrees that e-bikes have totally changed the game when it comes to getting people into cycling. It removes a lot of barriers. Um, there's there's barriers like, oh gee, can I actually ride that far? A hill isn't isn't necessarily a daunting factor anymore. Also, if you use it for transport in particular, you can wear your normal clothes. You don't feel like at the other end you need to have the shower and get changed. And a lot of the trips that people make every day could be done on an e-bike. I think the statistic is that 49% of all car trips travelled are less than 4.2 kilometres. So if you took out those trips, that would just make a huge, huge change. We see them as a key component in our efforts to decarbonise uh, road transport in particular. Hussein Deer is a professor of future urban mobility at Swinburne Uni. He says electric bikes and scooters are a great way to reduce our transport emissions because they're really clean even when they're charged from the grid. In Victoria, your average car produces 244 grams of CO2 per kilometre, whereas an electric bike produces six. Clearly, all electric vehicles, including what I call tiny vehicles, e-scooters, e-bikes, they are as clean as the energy grid that is feeding them. But in Australia, it's improving. Yeah, he calls them tiny vehicles. In Europe, e-bikes are booming, helped along in a lot of places by financial incentives from governments. The world leader is Germany, where they're expecting to sell more e-bikes than regular bikes this year. And a couple of years ago, the French government offered a subsidy where people could trade in an old polluting car and get €4,000 for an e-bike instead. Incentives are, are good, especially at a period where in Australia we're starting from behind in terms of vehicle electrification, we need to do much more. But in Australia, we don't have any subsidies in place. Tasmania recently announced that e-bikes will be included in its electric vehicle strategy, but there's no details yet about how that would work. To fill the gap, a number of businesses have popped up that lease e-bikes to people and they pay on a weekly basis, or some people can do it as a salary sacrifice. Professor Dia believes all governments should be putting more money into tiny vehicles. 
if we are serious about meeting Australia's targets of net zero emissions by 2050, we need to, to do more and move quickly. Our planet just cannot survive our current transport habits. Alison McCormack from the Bicycle Network says we also need to introduce standards for batteries like in Europe to make sure they're safe. And she wants more investment in infrastructure as well to keep up with the growing popularity of e-bikes. We know from studies that 75% of people are interested in bike riding. The one reason why they don't ride is because they're fearful. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. Joe Lauder with that story, hearing from a lot of people who are into e-bikes, hearing also from them on the text line right now. Someone says e-bikes are so good, they eat up the hills, so commuting is so much easier. Another person says, look, the government shouldn't have to drop the price. The company should. We should all play a part in the environment. Someone else says the problem with tax incentives for e-bikes is the government will not be able to raise road revenue. That was from Andy and someone else. I bought an e-assist bike. Absolutely love it. Big fella here. Lost a lot of weight. Can't rave enough about them. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.